Welcome to Integrative Oncology Talk, where we discuss the latest science and opinions from leading voices in integrative oncology. Integrative oncology utilizes complementary therapies and lifestyle strategies to help those affected by cancer using personalized approaches and evidence-based recommendations. This podcast is hosted by Dr. Santosh Rao, a medical oncologist and integrative oncologist, and Dr. Judith Lacey, a supportive care and integrative oncology physician. With support from the Society for Integrative Oncology, an international multidisciplinary organization whose mission is to advance the science and education of integrative oncology worldwide. The views expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect views of the participants' workplace or SIO and are not meant to offer medical advice. The information, opinions, and recommendations in the podcast are for general information only. Before making any changes in your healthcare or lifestyle, please discuss with your healthcare provider. I'm delighted to introduce my guest today and my first guest for 2023 on Integrative Oncology Talks, the distinguished professor Harvey Chochanov. Harvey's dedicated his career to really understand the essence of the person's experience living with cancer and disease and the impact we, as people working in healthcare, can have on that person and their outcome. Harvey and I have known each other for quite some years and his wisdom, insights and approach to whole person care inspires me. His writings and teachings on compassion, empathy, presence, attitude, the tenor of care and of course dignity and his ABCD of dignity have informed many in healthcare around the world and how we practice in this field of care and how we build our programs of supportive cancer care. Harvey's published extensively, was recently inducted into the Canadian Medical Hall of Fame and is an officer of the Order of Canada. The field of supportive and integrative oncology has been a natural progression for me from my earlier work in palliative care where we first met and to care fully for the whole person from diagnosis and beyond makes a lot of sense. Expanding the toolbox to include therapies that see and approach a person from different healing traditions that complement so beautifully standard cancer care makes sense. So we try to understand the impact of cancer on the person and learn how to engage and empower each person living with cancer. We very much rely on communication skills and therapeutic presence to create a partnership of the patient and the practitioner, to instill hope and assist all to live their best possible life each day and thrive independent of prognosis. And how we create this is a part of the art of medicine and the art of creating that ideal healthcare program. So whilst Harvey is, of course, most well-known in the palliative care and psycho-oncology world, I'm delighted that he's agreed to join me today. Integrative oncology is a rapidly developing field with the principles of whole person care at its core. Today, we will discuss the essence of this care, and I invite you to join us as I talk with my mentor and friend, Professor Harvey Max Chochanov. So Harvey, I'm so delighted to be speaking to you and recording on our first podcast for 2023 for the Integrative Oncology Talks, and thanks for joining for joining me. So we're just going to get right into this, and Harvey Chochanov, I've known you for a while, and I was trying to work it out, but it's been a few years and you have inspired me. And today we're going to really look at the essence of how we care for patients. So to work fully with people affected by cancer, 
think one really needs to understand the person, the impact the diagnosis has on that person, the impact we as healthcare professionals have on the people that we're caring for, but also all other people that are involved in that person's care within the whole healthcare system has has an impact on that person affected by cancer. And I only recently received a copy of your latest book, Dignity and Care, The Human Side of Medicine by Oxford Press, and it's a wonderful read. But in our short time together today, I thought I'd focus just on a few as- aspects of that very rich text to see um, if we can explore some of them more fully. I'm delighted. So I thought I'd start with this whole concept that um, is the lead chapter in your book, Patienthood versus Personhood. You know, in integrative oncology, it's really about assisting people through their cancer journey and empowering them to take care of themselves and to thrive. And to do this, we really need to understand the person, the person, the impact and the impact of cancer and the impact of becoming a patient on that person. So I'd just love you to just explain this concept to us and um, we'll start there. Terrific. And uh, and, and thank you, Judith, for this uh, wonderful opportunity. Um, you know, just uh, th- this past weekend, actually, I had uh, a- an article published by the uh, Toronto Star, one of our, our, our national newspapers, um, trying to uh, get out the word on some of these issues um, for healthcare consumers, for patients. And, and the article begins with a, a story of um, a former department head of medicine who uh, during the course of his uh, cancer, and he was, he was treated in the same hospital that at one time, you know, he was the, the clinical head in the Department of Medicine. And I remember him, him telling me that uh, during the, the midst of his treatment, in the midst of all of this, uh, the hurly-burly of treatment, he, he said he wished he could put a sign on his bedpost that read PIP, P-I-P. And I said, Okay, and, and, and that stands for exactly what? And he said, previously important person. <laughs> and, I, you know, I was struck by this, uh, the fact that, I mean, here is somebody who is so well-placed in, you know, the social determinants of health, somebody who is an esteemed colleague, really a, a nationally and an internationally lauded uh, physician, researcher, who struggled um, even he, you know, in this hospital, mm. he had such um, influence uh, and, and was held, as I say, in such high regard. Even he was struggling the fact that he now felt himself seen as a patient and that personhood mm. had somehow vanished. Uh, as you know, I mean, much of the research that I've done over the years has looked at, uh, you know, issues related to dignity and how we can maintain dignity uh, yep. amongst people who have life-threatening and life-limiting illness. And one of the things that we discovered, and again, uh, this isn't Harvey Chachanov pontificating or trying to sound like a secular rabbi. This is reporting the data. The data that we found yep. indicated that the most powerful indicator as to whether or not patients felt their dignity was upheld or, or mm. undermined or fractured was whether or not they felt that they were affirmed, that they were seen um, as the person that they were. And so, um, you know, the, the great irony is that, you know, we spend the entirety of our clinical lives looking, trying to look 
trying to find out how to look after patients. Yeah. And at the end of the day, what you find out is that nobody wants to be seen as a patient. You know, if if you are just seen as a problem checklist or as a differential diagnosis, then you feel that personhood is under assault. But when our care can include um, and acknowledge personhood in, in, in some way, and it doesn't have to be uh, anything fancy, but if it can acknowledge the essence of, of who we are, then we somehow feel that our care is care that maintains our personal dignity. Yeah, and the, and, and the challenge is how you do that. And what are those principles that uh, we can bring as practitioners, as healthcare professionals, to enable that to occur? I'd say, okay, first and foremost, um, I would say is the, the realization that we as healthcare providers play an important part mm. of that. We are part of that calculus. Um, if, if we don't recognize that, uh, and, and there is no neutral position in this, by the way, even mm. if we say, what, that really sounds like malarkey to me. I, I don't really go for that. What, what ends up happening is the, and, and I've talked about, I, I, mm. I published a, a number of years ago called Dignity in the Eye of the Beholder, and yes. I published it in the Journal of Clinical Oncology. And, and what I say, and, and this is metaphorically, what I say in that article based on our data is that patients are looking in the eye of the healthcare provider to provide them a reflection that will affirm their sense of personhood. Yes. If you don't offer that affirmation, if you don't realize that mm. you have that kind of uh, clinical res- responsibility and influence, then you you squander those opportunities and patients somehow feel um, that they haven't been seen. So the first thing is to realize that you are a critical part of this calculus. Yeah. Once Once you realize that, then there are multiple ways that we can we can provide affirmation. You know, you were referring to my book, and one of the, I mean, it's here's a, a very tiny, uh, nuanced um, illustration uh, yeah. that I that I talk about in the book, where um, there's a, a colleague of mine, James Johnson, very mm-hmm. busy um, hematologist oncologist, specializes in lymphoma and leukemias, and I remember one day he was walking into his office. And I was walking into the room adjacent to his office, and both doors were closing simultaneously. And the last thing that I heard him say before both our respective doors shut was, so how was the vacation? And, and what I write in the book is, you know, the fact is that, um, well, lymphoma and leukemia doesn't take a vacation. Yeah. Patients, people do. Mm. And so- even in that moment, um, what he's acknowledging is that, look, th- there, is, there is a whole person that is presenting to me. And if I acknowledge that, it's going to make uh, their clinical course feel more humane, uh, feel more compassionate, because they will feel understood. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing, uh, and again, when you start to probe personhood, and I can talk about other ways that we've done that. Yeah. But when you start to probe personhood and, and hear the things that people tell you, you, you walk away with the feeling that, you know, in the absence of that information, it would be impossible to offer them, you know, person-centered care. You know, I mean, we, we have asked people, yeah. you know, so, 
So, and as you know, in one of the, 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 the you were asking about tools, well, we have introduced the, the patient dignity question. What do yeah. I need to know about you as a person to take the best care of you that I can? Uh, we've conducted studies on this recently. Uh, mm. Memorial Kettering published a study of, of several thousand patients that mm. they asked this question to. And the kinds of responses you hear um, leave you feeling kind of gobsmacked. You know, I mean, I've had people say, well, what you need to understand uh, about my experience of being a patient is that, well, this is happening to me. I have a child who uh, is going through cancer treatment or I am uh, a victim of, uh, of the residential school system, which is a, a, a very, you know, heinous chapter in Canadian mm. history. Or, um, you know, I, uh, I had just, you know, recently was uh, reading uh, a, a, a report of a patient who had responded to this question saying that, you know, her, her first child had died, likely been murdered. And, uh, and, 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 you, and of course, you know, um, another patient who might say, well, I used to be a department head of medicine. Hmm. So what, what I'm saying, though, is that when you read that, you know, you say to yourself now, how is it conceivable that I could be providing uh, treatment, you know, for, for, for months on end to this mm. individual in the absence of knowing this piece of information that is really kind of quintessential in defining who they are as a human being? Yes. And in fact, um, you know, I take many of your, your teachings into my, just into my practice. And yesterday when I saw a, a woman and her daughter, and it was by telehealth. You can see, I think we, we have learned that that video space and this space is actually quite a good way to connect to people, with people. But she said, this, you know, this is the first time in my time with cancer, and she had metastatic um, gastric cancer and was seeing me as an integrative oncology and supportive care specialist. She said, it's the first time that I've been listened to and I feel that I've been heard. And I was asking her about her, her life and who she was because in order to care, it is about understanding who that person is because by for her, she'd lost a lot of weight. She was feeling um, a loss of sense of control. And I think what we can bring to people is that ability to hear them but also to help them find that sense of control and, and live as well as possible. And I think that feedback at the end of our consult and her daughter actually started crying and saying thank you. And I thought, I feel I've done, I've done my job. Absolutely. And, and, and the patient has felt acknowledged. They felt heard. And the other thing is that there are um, some, some real, you know, sort of, I mean, many people might say, well, you know, this all sounds a little bit touchy-feely. You know, this, this is sort of the soft, side of medicine. But, uh, and I have no difficulty, you know, with saying, you know, the soft side of medicine is, is critical because, you know, we deal with things that are very soft, you know, flesh and blood. We don't deal with steel. So if we were in the automotive industry, we wouldn't have to be looking at ways of affirming, you know, of the, uh, uh, the merits of this particular structure. But when you're dealing with flesh and blood, you have to find ways of affirming personhood. The, the other thing, though, is that there are some more hard-edged consequences. And what I mean by that is that when you make these kind of connections, patients are going to be more forthcoming. 
which means you're going to find out there's going to be clarity around goals of care. Yes. So there'll be best miscommunication. There's going to be clarity around goals of care. The other yeah. thing is that if you look at uh, reasons for litigation in medicine, mm. um, very infrequently it's because of medical misadventure. I mean, those things happen. Yeah. But most of the time, it's because people feel that they've been mistreated. They feel like they have not been treated with kindness. So, you know, this is also good if you're going to stay, uh, you know, out of the, the whole arena of, of litigation. The other thing, um, and again, I think, you know, especially in the time of COVID, yeah. is that um, we are dealing with a health force that is feeling uh, burdened um, and is feeling burnt out. And what we know about burnt, uh, about burnout is that um, when people start to feel uh, burnt out, they are in a place where they are emotionally disconnected from their patients. And our studies have shown that when you um, engage in this information that we elicit uh, mm. around we show and, and have reported that healthcare providers feel not only increased empathy and connectedness yeah. with patients, but they also report increased job satisfaction. Which is so important. And I think I'd like to segue from that point into the use of ourself as therapeutic, our therapeutic presence and our therapeutic use of self. And you write about this as well, and you've written about this for a long time, but using our therapeutic presence and communication skills to really engage a person and guide them when we're talking about empowering people, giving them back a sense of control engaging them in their own health care to move forward and and giving them skills to um, achieve this. How important is that therapeutic communication, us as practitioners, whether we're the doctor, the nurse, the acupuncturist, the massage therapist, the exercise oncologist, how can we use this? Is it something we can learn as well? Is it something that can be taught? Um, well, I, I think it can, um, uh, certainly to a degree, although, I mean, obviously all of us bring uh, certain gifts to the table um, and some people intuitively, you know, have a sense of, of, of how to do this more so than others. But um, a number of years ago, I mean, we uh, did a study where we tried to look at and, and in some ways, you know, kind of using the metaphor of uh, anatomical dissection, mm. we tried to dissect the elements of optimal therapeutic communication and, and published yeah. a paper on that. And, and, and one of those elements, and I think the, the element that you're referring to is um, therapeutic presence. Um, we, we talked about various different elements, but there were uh, things that we called, uh, for example, uh, therapeutic humility. Um, and there was another one called therapeutic presence. Therapeutic humility was an element of communication uh, that allows us to realize that there are certain things that we face in life and in medicine that um, don't lend themselves well to the kind of typical medical paradigm of um, examine, diagnose, and fix. Um, instead, um, I mean, we can examine or try and understand. We can diagnose, which sometimes uh, means coming up with an understanding or formulation, mm -hmm. but fix really needs to segue to the fact that um, not everything is amenable to that. And we need to really create a space in which mm -hmm. we can allow patients to express what they're feeling, knowing 
that we don't have all of the answers. So therapeutic humility, we described as being able to tolerate clinical ambiguity, um, uh, accepting and honoring the patient's expertise, uh, trusting in the process, and avoiding the need to fix, just being present. And I mean, and I suppose the kind of the quintessential example of that is when you are dealing with people who are either um, dealing with a loss or facing imminent loss. There's nothing you can do as a physician walking into the room of somebody who has just uh, recently been bereft or is anticipating that their lives will soon come to an end that is going to change that, but um, at least not change it in a way that we can fix it or eliminate suffering. But what we can do is we can be present for, and and it means... Uh, and, and this is why we called it humility. It, it means placing aside the need to have this agenda that we will uh, we will uh, redirect. We will put in a, the person in a place where they are on on a path towards uh, no longer suffering. Well, um, the fact is that what you can do is you can show up, you can be present, and by being present, you can make a difference. You know. Um, and and we know, I mean, you know, think about the times that you've been with people who are dealing with that kind of anguish. It really isn't about what you say. Um, it is about you being there and being able to tolerate the ambiguity and the pain of that clinical situation. The other thing uh, is that we also need to value um, this whole notion of therapeutic presence. And, yes. and we know that... Um, Sometimes the the most powerful tool we have is the the tool of of self, which means being compassionate, uh, being respectful and non-judgmental, being genuine, being authentic, being trustworthy, being uh, fully present, uh, valuing the intrinsic worth of the patient, um, and well, at the same time, being you know mindful mindful of of bound. Uh, boundaries and being kind of emotionally resilient. Yeah. Those are the the elements of therapeutic presence that are, are profound tools that we can hone and hopefully bring to the bedside of people that we care for. And I think it's the bedside even, and I would say even into the consulting room when people are having curative treatment, because the I think the impact of cancer can actually leave people with that sense of oh, my God, how do I move forward from here? I need guidance, support. I need to be met. Uh, you know, increasingly we're seeing so many people who are living with advanced cancer and the uncertainty of remaining on a disease-modifying treatment in that sort of limbo space. How do I move forward? And I, and I see that um, ability to meet someone where, they're, where they are as, a, as something that I have learned through my work at the end, with people closer to the end of life, to now bring it into the the survivorship space and the um, living well with cancer space, and so that is so. It's not just being present at the bedside, but it's being present with people. Yes, I, I was using bedside sort of metaphorically as you know, the, the present with uh, patients. But you're absolutely right, and 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 Judith, I, I've had the same experience as you, and that is that. Although uh, most, if not all, of my research has mm. been in the context of palliative care, um, I mean, people near the end of life are people, mm. and 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 what 
we have learned and what I have learned from people is that those insights that we glean near the end of life uh, resonate across the entire human life cycle. So this, this discussion about personhood, for example, this is not a palliative care discussion. This is a discussion of how to be with other people, um, mm-hmm. you know, from cradle to grave. Uh, you know, in fact, you know, I mean, I recently was sent an article by some folks who were looking at some of our work. And uh, although this work had all taken place, you know, within the context of end-of-life care, they were now applying this to ways of being able to deliver good care uh, for athletes in their training and how to provide person-centered care for athletes. So again, although although this information comes from a, a place of patients nearing death, the insights really are about, you know, how do we be uh, as clinicians yes. with human beings who are struggling with, you know, various forms of adversity, whether, you know, it's, and as I say, from from cradle to grave, from uh, obstetrics to uh, internal medicine, these things apply equally. Yes. And I think it's interesting, you know, you're a psychiatrist, you use um, your therapeutic presence and self as your treating tool, many of us have said, oh, well, we'll just write a script as, um, or use chemotherapy or use our skills as acupuncturists. But I would be arguing that very few people will leave my consultation with a script and that these principles that may have started in the realm of psychiatry are actually very comfortably fit into our role as um, all healthcare professionals. Well, if if only I would have begun my career for for example my uh, my studies on dignity. If only you know if they would have ended up that I could be prescribing dignity ten milligrams of BID. I, I would probably <laughs> be far richer than I am now. But um, nevertheless, I mean the work on on, on dignity, as you know, um, I mean has led to really in- interesting insights. I mean insights about mm. how to understand it, how to operationalize it, how to measure dignity related. Mm. Dist- and, and finally, you know, how to uh, try and operationalize dignity uh, in a way that we could then um, offer therapeutic modalities that have targeted things like generativity and legacy that have been shown in, you know, multiple trials. I mean, there, you know, there are at least a, a hundred empirical studies, for example, on dignity therapy. And at least my last count was about 10 systematic reviews mm. affirming that, you know, this kind of uh, approach therapeutically seems mm. to enhance end-of-life experience. And I should I should back up not only end-of-life experience, but now um, having implications in terms of how to address these needs of patients whose personhood is undermined by psychiatric issues or is undermined by dementia or is undermined by incarceration. I I got a, um, and there's a paper in the literature about dignity therapy uh, in prisons. And years ago, I got a, 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 a note from a a prison chaplain who had actually sent me this uh, extraordinary picture that a a prisoner had drawn as the cover sheet of his dignity therapy documents showing a man uh, surrounded by a cell um, and how he was now dying in isolation and would spend his final days in that setting. And I think that um, the work in dignity therapy and dignity and care has really been transforming, transformative to the whole of um, not just palliative care, but all of um, 
definitely cancer care. It's transformed the way our hospital um, approaches all our patients. And the dignity patient question is really a part of how we see people. Mm. But it's, it is transformative and, and it's great to hear that it's happening elsewhere. I'm going to segue. I like the word segue. You used it a lot when you ran the Dignity Therapy uh, workshop for us many years ago in Australia and look forward to having you back sometime soon. But in integrative oncology, increasingly, we talk a lot about that mind-body connection, the connection of and the healing aspects of care and that importance of recognising there is a very strong connection with, with the mind and the body. I think increasingly people are, you know, breaking it down further and talking about the anti-inflammatory diet, the microbiome, talking about the importance of stress management, mindfulness, yoga, yoga therapy, exercise and care, working out how we can reduce stress, improve mental well-being and help repair the body, but the impact our body has on our mental state. How do we work with that and how does that mind-body connection, do you think, fit into this approach to care or does it? Uh, I suppose, you know, I mean, the, the associations that, that I have when you, you talk about mm. uh, body, um, I mean, I in, in my work, uh, I have been looking so much <coughs> at the issue of, you know, who is this individual as a person versus, you know, who is this individual as a patient? And I guess what, what I see is that when you try and somehow dichotomize those, when you try and, and put those into silos, what ends up happening is that it is to the detriment of both the provider and to the, to the patient and, and the family member. So that if we can kind of break down those silos to, to, to remember that, although, you know, I mean, language forces us to use um, words that, that help us to organize our thinking. Um, the fact is that the human experience of, of illness and adversity uh, takes place within whole persons, um, which, and again, you know, I mean, over, over the years, I mean, you know, we have looked at so many aspects of, you know, what I refer to as kind of the experiential landscape of end-of-life care. Mm-hmm. And what we've done is that even though, I mean, we too, I mean, are limited by language. And so we have siloed many experiences using uh, particular kinds of outcome measures that look at Mm -hmm. those domains of experience. So, you know, measuring pain, you know, measuring psychological distress, even trying to measure uh, to the extent we can dignity related distress or existential but what's interesting is that when you start to look at them, uh, not separately, but when you start to look at them together, mm. they have an influence on one another. I mean, some of our, our early studies, and, and again, these studies now go back so many years, but in the, in the in, I think it was 1999 that we published a study in The Lancet, and we looked at the interface between the experience of pain and whether or not somebody wanted to remain alive. And what was interesting is that when you when you treat pain, what you find is that it has these spiritual ripple effects that that people now want to live longer, uh, even in the throes of life having you know a limited time frame left. So I guess that what I, what I'm saying is that whole persons experience these things 
concurrently. And we do people a disservice when we don't recognize that, when we, when we try and silo them, which is, you know, I think, you know, I think why palliative care, perhaps more so than many other areas, and, and again, um, I don't know much about integrative oncology as you, but I, I have a sense from the way you are describing it that um, it has a good handle on the idea that we, we, we talk about these experiences in silos to the detriment of patient and patient well-being. So uh, I guess it's, it's my long-winded way of saying that if we can think about our mandate as being whole persons, um, mm. knowing that, yes, I mean, we need to treat pain and we need to treat nausea and we need to treat the underlying malignancy, but we also need to somehow acknowledge the person that that is going to help the, the individual, it's going to help their family member, and it's going to help the healthcare provider for reasons I've already talked about in terms of job satisfaction and mitigating things like burnout um, in a very positive way. And I think sometimes we do silo care and we look at what we can fix. So uh, in a way, so can I control your pain to enable you to live more fully because the pain isn't so overwhelming to you? But can I um, assist you in changing the way you um, you eat, you move, you sleep, you engage with others to enable you to have a more full living experience and I see I guess my role as to identify what the main cause of suffering or disbalance and disharmony is and enable um, strategies to enable that person to be whole and I think the understanding of what you're trying to achieve is that sense of how do I enable you to remain the person and thrive as the person you are and not the patient and if that makes sense. It does. But, you know, um, there's, I think, you know, it, you know it, it's, it's possible for us to even kind of, you know, push the boundaries of, of what we understand as being uh, helpful or potentially healing. Because, mm. um, look, at, again, as I said before, I mean, there, there are many things that don't lend themselves well to the, you know, examine, diagnose, fix paradigm. Yes. Um, so, you know, let's say we have somebody who is feeling, you know, that they are, are have now become a burden. Um, let's say we have somebody who is feeling like they're no longer the person they once were. I mean, I think something that we have illustrated yes. is profound existential resonance. I think we need to be mindful that our openness to allowing patients to even express that has therapeutic benefit, you know, and again, this is what, you know, it, it takes this, you know, therapeutic humility. I mean, cause I've had people, you know, look at, for example, we developed the patient dignity inventory, a, an instrument that's now, you know, used in, in various uh, programs and, mm -hmm. and research endeavors around the world uh, available in about a dozen languages. And, 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 you know, it taps into things like, you know, I don't feel like who I once was. Um, I, I feel like, like I'm a burden. I'm, I'm feeling, you know, spiritual distress. And I've had people say, well, okay, so I can, I can measure that. I can, I can elicit that by the virtual instrument, but what the heck am I supposed to do about it? And what I say is, you know, um, well, back up for a minute. It, it, what, you, what, you need to, what you need to do about it is to be available to hear it, you know, yes. to, to allow patients to express it and understand that, 
you know, just the ability to say, you know, um, I don't feel like I'm the person I once was. And to to go there with that patient, um, not feeling like, okay, what do I what tool can I grab in my toolkit that is going to, you know, shift the widget in the right direction so that it is now fixed? I, I think we need to have humility and trust to know that allowing patients to give voice to that in and of itself is profound and powerful. Yes. And and one of the questions I um, ask my patients often when they've completed treatment is how close to your the self or the self you want to be or once were are you? Sometimes that resonates with patients. They say, well, I'm about 50% of who I were or I'm, and now I'm, you know, 80% to that person and and what you know i i'm a i'm a doctor i'm a fixer as um and and it's within me and i'm saying well what what else besides being present can i now that we've elicited that and i'm here for you for you to come back and explore this further but how do we get you to that point can we and if we can't how do we be with you and i think that's but but maybe there's a but is there another way of thinking about it, Judith? And that yeah, is, you know, well, I mean, you know, look at when when somebody has experienced, for example, a uh, a death uh, mm. of uh, an intimate loved one. Mm. Uh, you know, we I mean, we don't ask them. You know, uh, you know, three years, four years down the road. So are are you back to normal? You know, are you no. are you back to where you started? Because no. what we know is they that these mm. profound experiences. They they shift, you know, your your mm-hmm. your life course and you know the the path that you're on. So mm. we, we are shaped by these experiences, and so I, I don't expect people to be, you know, where they, you know, to get back to where they were, no. um, taking you on a different path. So it's not about returning to where you were. It's about finding a new path um, and about feeling, um, you know, a, a sense of wholeness or fulfillment or equanimity or wherever it is you feel you can arrive at. But but it's not about coming full circle. Uh, I, no, I don't think- no, no, I, I agree. I agree. It isn't. And a lot of people will actually say it's a transformative experience when they have had a cancer diagnosis. I work a lot of, with breast cancer patients and they will say, I'm not who I was, but I'm heading towards a person I am comfortable being. If that makes sense, I'm 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 on a different path. Uh, so I, I can't I can't measure where I'm at on this mm. path based on the path that I left. Mm. You know that that was a different chapter, but I, I'm in a different place, and so you know there there are different metrics. Yeah, we could talk for a long time, but I would like just to have a few minutes to talk about why you wrote the book Dignity and Care: The Human Side of Medicine. I think we've spoken about it a lot. I think it's pretty obvious to me. Why did you feel it was the right time to write this book now? And what do you think it, it brings us to medicine, particularly cancer care of today and medicine of today? Well, I guess, okay, we've all come through uh, through COVID and, and, and during COVID, you know, I think uh, mm. uh, all of us, uh, myself included, were looking at, so, you know, what 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 do we do? What can I do to continue to make my life feel uh, meaningful and, and, and vital. Um, and the fact is that 
I'm, I'm certainly far from the beginning of my career, and I, I, I have a feeling that I'm well past the middle of my career. So, I, I mean, not to say that, you know, the end of my career is imminent, but I, I'm certainly in the final chapters of my career. I mean, of, of that, there's no doubt. And so it just seemed like the right time to say, you know, I mean, there's been kind of a, a lifetime of uh, not only clinical work, but as well mm. empirical work. And, and the empirical mm. work is really what has, um, you know, kind of fed my passion o- over the decades and learning about things like why do patients not want to go on living in anticipation of, uh, of a life limiting condition, um, learning about dignity, uh, writing about uh, personhood, more recently writing about what I've called the platinum rule, which really is about how can we sensitize ourselves to our own personal biases and the ways in which we see the world as shaping the kinds of um, information, the kinds of, of advice that we offer patients. So writing the book was somehow a way of saying, you know, this feels like the right time to somehow try and summarize, you know, what I've learned. Um, mm. I, I also had the, uh, the good fortune of being able to interview, um, you know, about 15 to 20 really uh, kind of uh, colleagues uh, mm. who, whose insights I've used to illustrate um, many of the principles that that I have uh, either found to be true and and shown to be true in terms of my clinical research. So I didn't just want to write another book that contained a series of uh, of poignant and compelling stories. I mean, there are lots of mm. wonderful books like that, uh, and, and 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 they can be very moving. But I wanted to be able to use. Um, all of this, you know, the stories that I've heard to be able to illustrate what I've discovered in the course of my research career, um, you know, mm-hmm. and affirmed my clinical experience. So that is the reason that I, I wrote the book now. As I say, um, it's written in the final chapters of of my career. M- my hope is that these mm-hmm. last chapters long, last a long enough time that perhaps, you know, there will be another book or there will oh, be another paper or two or three, but but it felt like this was the right time in life to leave at least this particular um, documentation mm. of what I've learned thus far, and hopefully to, to share it with others so that we can collectively raise the bar on person-centered care. And I think the, um, the time is now, and I've been involved with the supportive oncology group in developing a um, a statement about you know it's time for change in in supportive oncology, but and the integrative oncology twentieth anniversary conference in Banff, which is around the corner from you. Integrative oncology is a standard of care. The time is now. There's this sense that it is the right time to start really looking at. Okay, we've sort of worked out how to manage cancer, we're turning it more into a chronic disease, we have more people living with cancer, the shift to end of life is, you know, it used to be a focus in cancer care and now we're, but it's all about living and thriving and your work so informs our space and this space and in, in, informs our, our space as practitioners and and working in healing profession of medicine and um, working out how we achieve that. So we can talk for a long time, but I would like to say thank you very much for this um, 
engaging discussion and I look forward to our next conversation. Thank you, Judith. It's, it's, uh, it's been my pleasure.